and welcome to the Raptor Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Make sure you find the Raptor Show wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe and please rate and review the show. I'm your host, William Liu. Joining us for the show today, a really action-packed show. We're scheduled to have Darko Ryakovic, head coach of the Toronto Raptors, joining us shortly uh, through the magic of Zoom in segment one. Segment two, we're going to talk to Bobby Marks uh, about... The extensions that were signed yesterday, uh, obviously Giannis got a huge bag, but other players also got bags. The Raptors didn't extend anybody, so we'll talk about that as well. Segment three, we're going to have Michael Pena from The Ringer to talk about his outlandish predictions uh, for this upcoming season as uh, tonight, the it's ring night, and so uh, there'll be two games to tip off in the NBA. The Raptors will tip off tomorrow. And then uh, segment four, we'll have a little prehistoric blurb. Because, uh, you know, Look at that. we haven't done enough of those on this show. Is yours signed yet? Uh, no, it's not signed, but it's also not read either because uh, I, I read the manuscript on the PDF, not the actual book itself. But Blake, now, how you doing, man? I, I, I'm, I'm good. Mine isn't signed yet either, but I heard if you go to some indigo around the city that you could find pre-signed copies with little really? messages in there for you. So okay. that's, a, that's a fun little Easter egg. I'm good, man. Uh, you were just down at practice. How, how was that? Like, like they were off yesterday. They've had a lot of practices. How's of the, practice. uh, does it, did you get that kind of sense of like, all right, let's play some games. Like everyone's kind of r- raring to go now. Yeah, a little bit, I think. I mean, I, I, you know, obviously everybody's there getting the work in. Most important thing is uh, Darko confirmed that everybody will be healthy and available to play, obviously short of Christian Coloco. Um, but, you know, they'll have their full squad, their full rotation for day one. And so. I mean, obviously, everyone's talked about sort of what's new, what's changed. But uh, even with preseason, which looked pretty good, um, you won't really get to see it until we actually hit the court. So it was great to hear from Precious as well, finally, because obviously Precious had missed a lot of training camp. And, um, yeah, that's a a confident man right there. Yeah, I do want to talk about Precious's claims about his defense maybe a a little later coming out of Coach Darko. But I did want to add, you you asked – Dennis Schroeder, the oh, tough question. Okay. You asked him about the Pat Bev quote that the Raptors <laughs> yeah. don't have any dogs. What did what was Schroeder's response? Like, yeah. did he pull a I'm a cat guy like like Will Lou or or what's the uh, what's the answer there? First of all, both of us are cat guys. Yeah. All right. But you have uh, multiple, and I feel like people know that about you more than they know it about me. I got breaking news. I actually got a third cat. But, wow. Um, Name? Alfie. Okay. Shouts to Alfie. Um, somewhere at home, probably napping. But um, yeah. So I asked. Dennis about this because I, I mean look first off I figured other people would have asked about this because it was such a big talking mm-hmm. point online yesterday if you haven't seen the context uh Patrick Beverly talked about how the Raptors don't have any dogs on their team maybe we'll ask coach Tarko if, if, if there's some dogs on the team but um I just thought I'd ask Dennis because he was teammates with uh Pat Bev last year on the Lakers and 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 Tarko is always or, or sorry um Dennis. Dennis is always was very gracious and he just said like that's just Pat Bev you know yeah you love him when he's on your team but anyway we're going to pivot off that conversation and bring into the line head coach of the Toronto Raptors Darko Ryakovich joining the Raptors show for the second time coach how you doing I'm doing great how are you guys doing we're, we're doing really well we just came back from uh seeing you at practice so it's funny to run into you oh, nice. uh once again there you go there you go Okay, there we go. We got you on camera. Um, okay, before we actually flow into the basketball questions, got to ask you about uh, the Halloween costumes and the party that happened over the weekend that Pascal put on at Casa Loma. You went as Captain Jack Sparrow. Walk us through that costume. Yeah, so uh, Pascal uh, organized the um, now uh, annually Halloween party at Casa Loma and uh, for me it was a great opportunity for the first time to see uh, Casa Loma from inside. Um, I guess that it looks a little bit different when it's not Halloween season, but uh, still, it was uh, it was pretty cool to be there. 
and uh, it was great. Just uh, event uh, that we had uh, all the players and, and the staff and the uh, whole basketball operations together. Just another way for us to to get together, together and kick off uh, the season. And uh, since it was my first time uh, being part of it, uh, my uh, my wife uh, she really wanted me to to have a good good costume and to have a good makeup. And uh, for the first time in my life, I've uh, I put some makeup on my on my face, and it was not easy to to take it off after the party. But uh, it was it was great event, and it was great just to be around uh, everybody that night. I was going to ask about the makeup. I've done eyeliner as part of a Halloween costume before, and you go to the gym the next day and you think you've washed it off, and then it's like running down your face as you're getting shots up. Uh, did you you manage to avoid you? You have a wife, so you have a an edge here in, in that someone was maybe walking you through how to get out of that stuff. Uh, trust me, without her help, I would not be able to pull it up. And uh, she really helped me to to take it off. And I didn't even know that there are so many tricks and use <laughs> this soap and oily cream or whatever. But um, it, it came off pretty quickly, actually. All right. Um, we're going we're gonna to get to something you're much more familiar with, with just with basketball. So obviously, you guys go 4-0 um, in the preseason games. You guys look really great. Um, and I just wanted to ask you in terms of the mood around the team right now in training camp. There was so much discussion about this last season. Obviously, you weren't here for that. Um, but it seems like, at least to us in the media and maybe to the fans on the outside, it seems like you guys have really been able to really talk and, and be together as much as possible. And uh, I would just like to hear your perspective sort of how the team is operating right now. Yeah, well, obviously, uh, preseason games uh, they uh, they were great uh, for us. We needed to play those games to to get in the rhythm and groove and uh, start uh, implementing uh, things that are very important for us on uh, both both ends of the floor. Um, and I thought that uh, guys did an outstanding job uh, in in those games, but also in all the practices that led to to this point. Um, we uh, we are uh, ready for the start of the season. Everybody's got nerves. We just want to to get going and uh, playing uh, playing games. It's been a long time for all of us preparing up till uh, this moment. Uh, so we're really excited uh, about opening night, and it's going to be awesome that we're playing uh, at home. Um, so we're ready to kick off the year the right way. Coach, I, I know you've coached in a lot of different situations. You have a lot of experience. But did you learn anything about yourself going through this camp, being the guy running a camp and coaching these first four preseason games? Uh, learning uh, learning every day. Uh, you know, in this line of business, uh, you cannot all you, – you don't have all the answers. And uh, it's impossible. Game is changing so much. Uh uh, players are always changing. The league is changing. Rules are changing. So you you constantly got to be up to speed and trying to catch up with, with tendencies in players and whatnot. Uh, but uh, it's, a, it's a learning opportunity for me. I'm really trying to to, to connect with, uh, with our guys and uh, uh, to help those guys uh, to feel comfortable once they step on the floor. Um, it's, been, it's been a great process so far. Yeah, so one of the topics at practice uh, over the weekend was, you know, Pascal and Scotty, how they can help each other on the floor. And that's such a big discussion for everybody. Um, I want to hear your thoughts in terms of how both those guys can help amplify and help each other's games. 
Yeah, we, we have multiple players on our team that can do multiple things on offensive and defensive end. And uh, um, when, I, when we play to our standard uh, with bold movement and finding open guys and uh, uh, playing aggressively on the ball, um, it just opens up so much uh, for each other. And uh, both uh, Pascal and Scotty, they're complementing each other really well and they're making each other better because all of those, both of those guys, they can shoot it, they can dribble it, they can attack the paint, they can post up, they can find open man. So uh, they really complement each other really well. On the defensive end, that, that particularly stands out. And I know you were very complimentary uh, of Scotty's defense uh, down at practice today, you, you said that he could one day grow into a defensive player of the year candidate. And look, Pascal's a guy who has gotten some all defense votes before. OG Ananobi ha- was all defense last year, and we all know how good he is defensively. Um, you know, some of the focus is going to be on Scotty and Pascal helping each other offensively. But what can that look like for you guys defensively where the individual talent level is so high? Uh, correct. I, I think we have uh, amazing defensive players. Uh, as you said, uh, we had players that, that uh, in the past had recognition as uh, some of the best players uh, defensively in the league. And um, it's going to come down to their individual effort, but also how we help each other. And uh, um, we have some lineups that we can have out there that can really create uh, a nightmare for uh, for our opponents and uh, switchability that we have uh, on offensive, on uh, defensive end and just uh, uh, multiple players that are ca- capable of guarding multiple positions. Uh, it's, it's, it, it, I believe we're going to have really good uh, defensive season. And uh, when team has good performance on uh, offensive or defensive end, that's what brings uh, accolades and, and rewards uh, individually. So everything starts with the team. So last year we saw, um, obviously under a different coaching staff, but you know, the Raptors' style of defense was always very aggressive. I'm, I'm sure, you know, when the Raptors played Memphis, for example, that was something that kind of stood out. It's just the Raptors were really aggressive, were really looking to force turnovers, at least so far in preseason. And obviously, you know, we can't take all the takeaways from preseason, but it seems like your defense is a little bit more conservative in that sense where you guys want to be solid, you guys want to keep the man in front, limit help. You guys did a really great job of taking away corner threes, taking away the paint. Um do you think that's kind of fair to characterize sort of the change in the defense this year is that you guys are more conservative but also more solid? Um, I, I think when you have a roster like ours, uh, when you have a lot of length, uh, I think that really helps uh, um, making teams uh, play in their discomfort level and to take uh, tough shots. Uh, for us, uh, pain, pain protection is something that we're going to really focus on. Uh, and uh, as you said, guarding uh, corner threes and above the break threes uh, at the end. Um, I think when we play that way and we when we use our length, it's going to be really hard for people to shoot over us. Uh, we want to be uh, very active defensively, to to be in the right positions, and kind of like to to force our opponents to make mistakes instead of like 
scrambling all the time and just hoping for them to to make mistake uh, make mistakes and turnovers turnovers are not our goal our goal is uh to have a big number of deflections and as i said to protect the paint and protect the corner threes if you do that you'll be able to force teams into tough shots uh, heavy contested shots which a lot of times are same like a turnover because it allows you to to defensively rebound and then push the ball in transition how, how important is that aspect going to be, the grabbing it off of the defensive rim and pushing right away, getting over half court with 22, 21 seconds left on the shot clock? Because, you know, this this all sounds great. It looks great so far. But I think the one thing that people think when you hear, well, maybe there will be fewer turnovers, this has been a team that's been close to the league lead in transition opportunities the last couple of years. So, so how do you manage that? And how do you encourage guys to, yeah, if you grab a defensive rebound, no matter who it is, maybe push it up the floor quick? Right. Um, uh, that's exactly what we're trying to do. We want uh, to have multiple players and we have multiple players that can uh, bring the ball up the floor and to be aggressive in open court. And uh, that's something that we're going to continue to focus on. Uh, I think that this year tendency in NBA in general is going to be that uh, teams will be sending more guys to offensive glass. And uh, we really got to be very solid with our defensive rebounding and uh, to help ourselves to uh, to be able to go out in transition and score. Obviously, we want uh, to be able to play in open court. Uh, those are most efficient shots when defense is not set and organized. And uh, we have uh, multiple players that are capable to bring the ball and attack the paint and to make right decisions from there. Right. Um, I want to ask you also about sort of how you guys have managed the rotation. You, you said on media day, and it's been consistent in, in your actions too uh, throughout preseason, but you want to ideally play a 10-man rotation most days. I want to ask you just maybe just from here, like why why 10 in particular? Um, I, I think, uh, first of all, we have a deep roster and we have uh, multiple players that can help us night in and night out. Um, it's a long season. It's 82 games and... Uh, I don't want to play guys 38, 40 minutes uh, every single night uh, because that's going to, first of all, it's not fair to them to run them to ground and, uh, you know, to to have those guys. We got to think about their uh, long-term interest in playing in NBA for a long time and playing for, for the Raptors for a long time. Um, so we got to preserve their bodies to keep their freshness and to, when they touch the floor, that actually they feel good and they are staying aggressive and they're staying engaged opposite to, you know, sometimes running in the, in the red zone and then being, uh, being tired and not being able to finish, uh, games in a high, high, uh, level. Um, and I, I really trust our guys. I really trust that we have a deep and good roster and a lot of players that can contribute night in, night out. And uh, um, I'm going to trust our guys uh, with, uh, with those kind of rotations. How has the response been from the handful of guys who were here last year and might see their minutes decrease a little bit right now? Have you have they been eager to, to hear that? And, hey, you're going to be fresher in the fourth quarter. You're going to be fresher in April. Have they heard that message, do you think, and appreciated it? Yeah, we, we talked about it. Uh, I had individual conversations with, with uh, several players about that. And, uh, you know, um, it's uh, there. there's going to be nights when certain guys might be 38 minutes on the floor, but the other nights they might be playing uh, 30 minutes. You know, when we talk about minutes, it's about 
minutes that uh, accumulate over over the whole season and uh, there is a lot of study that shows that you know that body can can break down after you know certain amount of, of minutes and then extra loads and uh, for me it's it's about how effective they're going to be uh, how fresh they're going to be when they're actually in the floor and how much they're contributing every possession down the court offensively and defensively you know so um, I trust our guys they know that uh, that I have their best interest at heart and uh, I, I think that uh, everybody inside our organization they're going to value their their contribution hey coach um you know, we had Chris Boucher on the show uh, two weeks ago, and Chris mentioned something really interesting about the way you were running uh, your practices. He said you guys ran a drill where it was five on five, uh, but the players weren't allowed to dribble. So can you tell me about sort of what, why you chose to do that drill and also uh, how the players responded to that drill? Um, yeah, uh, it's uh, something that we use in Europe uh, a lot. Uh, is like the teaching guys that actually they can touch the paint and they they can uh, be aggressive without just uh, dribbling the ball and um, the and the playing pick and roll. That uh, learning how to use all ball screens, how to cut, how to touch the paint. And uh, teaching guys to uh, to work on one very underestimated uh, skill of the game, which is passing the ball, you know. So um, um, it was interesting to put guys in those situations. We'll definitely go back to to this this type of drills, and uh, it's something that that we do in Europe normally, and uh, it's um, it's not a big deal when you do that in Europe. Okay. But maybe that's more innovative here and in, in, uh, over over here in the NBA. Uh, I also want to ask you. Um, so you know, I j- just had a conversation with uh, Bobby Webster at, down at practice, and I was asking sort of about this interview and sort of um, the hiring process is sort of like why obviously the Raptors chose you to be the head coach. And one word he kept bringing up was sort of you're really personable. You know, players really like to work with you because you really build that relationship with the players. And um, I, I'm you know I think obviously every coach has their own approach, but. Where does that ability for you come from? Why are you so personal with the players? Because we see it even on the court as well. You're always smiling and sort of giving them as much feedback as possible and trying to build that connection. Um, I think that uh, in the role of, of a coach, uh, you have uh, such a big influence on on players and uh, how they perform. And that's uh, that's why I do this job, because I believe I can influence player to be better, to to coach him, to teach him some, some things that I lear- learned along the way. A lot of times that's learning from other players, not necessarily just coaches, but just like I, I, I want to help players. I, I care about our guys a lot, and I believe that's the right approach to have guys to have the, the buy-in and to do the right think for for each other and i i believe by by, you know bottom line is uh i believe that's how you get uh, teams to be most efficient and most successful teams right well i I want to ask uh, sort of on on this topic is just one thing you also see in preseason we we only saw you use one coach's challenge so maybe that also extends in terms of being personal with the officials as well so i I guess it's hard to say this now but um, how do you think uh, your relationship with officials and, and sort of your approach towards sort of communicating with, with them is going to go this season? I mean, uh, we have the best officials in the, in the world. Uh, they're really trying to do their best every single night. Um, obviously, there's going to be emotions uh, in, in the games that, uh, especially from like, you know, coach's side, 
you know, then sometimes we're right, sometimes we're not right, uh, we're in wrong. At the end of the day, those guys are professional. They are, they're trying to do uh, the best they can. Um, obviously, I'm going to always try to pro protect my my guys and uh, I'm going to be using challenges when I find a need for that, you know, so, um, you know, it's going to be ongoing process for, for all of us learning that. Right, for sure. I guess you won't really know until you're really in the fire. All right, uh, we're, we're, told, we're getting told to wrap up, so we're going to quickly wrap with some rapid fire questions. This is a really great profile written about you and your uh, career so far by Eric Kareen over at The Athletic, and he talked to a lot of people about this, so big assist to Eric for this story. I just want to ask a couple of follow-up questions uh, in that piece and just get a quick answer from you, okay? So one of the quotes in that story was Monty Williams. He said, quote, the amount of caffeine he consumed over a 24-hour period is legendary. So, Coach Darko, how much caffeine do you usually have on a daily basis, and and, and how much caffeine did you have on this day, for example? Yeah, um, I mean, I I, I love uh, espresso. I love coffee. Uh, actually, I started drinking coffee pretty late uh, when I was twenty nine years old. Uh, coffee is a big part of culture in, in Serbia. Mm. You know, in Serbia, you never invite somebody, let's go grab lunch. You know, you don't do that. You, everybody invite, let's go grab coffee. Okay. And, you know, once you get to get, get somebody to, to grab a coffee, it might end up with a lunch and dinner and going out in, in a club and <laughs> you just don't know where it's going to go. You know, so uh, coffee is a big part of our culture. And usually I drink like two or three espressos a day. Oh, that's normal. Come on. That's normal. Uh, no, game game day is, is a different story, though. <laughs> oh, wait, how many is the game day? Uh, five, six. Okay, uh, all right. Fair enough. Uh, I also wanted to ask uh, in that piece, because you and Sam Presti, uh, the OKC GM, you know, you go all the way back to your days uh, together in Serbia. And Eric wrote about this one story about how you were taking him out to, to dinner once, and, and it kind of emptied out your bank account. Um, <laughs> so I'm just curious, has, has Sam repaid that favor to you? Has he emptied out his bank account to take you out to dinner? Yeah, so uh, that that's that's true story. That's true story. Uh, Sam uh, is a great friend friend of mine. Uh, he came to visit in Belgrade, and uh, literally, like, we went to the nice restaurant, but it was nothing too crazy. But at, at the time, um, that's all me and my girlfriend at the time. That's all we had. So. Literally, we emptied out our uh, uh, bank account. I don't know how and why he figured it out, but uh, three days later, you know, um, he sent money our way. Which oh, okay. was not, wow, what it, a good guy. It, it was not expected. It was not needed, but uh, he, he figured it out that we're running low. <laughs> All right. Blake, did you have a last rapid-fire question you want to ask? Very quickly. I'm coaching against Will in a game coming up. I haven't coached in a while. Do you have any first timer tips for how to how to take advantage of a of a guy like Will? Will who? Will my my co-host here. He's going to be the opposing team uh, starting center. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, uh you got to study the film a lot and uh find uh, all the weaknesses and uh try <laughs> try to explore those. I'm going to foul <laughs> him out real quick. Yeah, he's going to run a lot of pick and rolls at me. All right. <laughs> there you go. Coach, thank you so much for your time. Hey, next time on the show, we want to talk about your academic paper on pick and rolls, all right? Sounds good. Thank you, you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. That was uh, head coach Darko Ryakovic. Um, yeah. I mean, honestly, how many coaches in the league have written an academic paper on pick and rolls? Very few, I would imagine. Yeah. yeah. And it's, so, uh, yeah, I got to gotta go dust off my old accounts for, for where you can download those stuff uh, gratis. Yeah, free J of charge. J-Store? Yeah. Yeah.
Yeah, I think I still have a, a login somewhere. Yeah. Um, there are ways around that as well. If there are any students listening, we can. We can <laughs> seriously. We might. We might need your help. No, but seriously though, it'd be great to to have him defend his uh, pick and roll dissertation. Yeah, it's cool. I, I'd yeah. also like. I don't know how much he's going to give away on the show in terms of tactics. Like, we'll yeah. we'll see. Every every coach has a, a different feel for that. But I, I'm fascinated having gone through that and having talked to him a little bit and watched this now. You know where he sees long term. You know those kind of evolutions coming in not just the pick and roll but in offensive basketball because you know to talk to nick nurse over the last couple of years he really strongly felt that the next revolution was going to come on the defensive side of things and now you know okay are we starting to see that the way teams take away certain things how do offenses adjust so him having studied kind of the long-term trends of that ebb and flow between offensive defense I, i'd be very curious to hear you know how he sees that plan out over the next you know five years or so yeah that's actually something that darko was even talking about today at practice um you know friend of the program joe wolfon was was down there at practice and you know he was asking darko some tactical questions you know for example in that bulls game they did a lot of switching and sort of that keeps the ball in front and sort of just asked darko sort of how the raptors are going to manage to attack switching defenses right and that's obviously something where uh, pick and rolls got so successful that eventually you just had to switch everything just to keep the ball in front to, to negate some advantages. And uh, Darko had a lot to say about that. You know, he talked about sort of, okay, we might have to slip more often, right? That's obviously one of the, you know, you 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 pretend you're going to set the screen, but then yeah. you just slip and you catch guys going. Which is uh, tough because that's how you, you end know, up with balance. poor screen setting and sure. maybe the or, ball handler can't create space off of it. But right. also, you know, if the slip is successful, that's how most pick and pop threes come about, for example. Yeah. And Darko was talking about different angles to screen. So, I mean, look, listen, I think tactically um, it'll be much more telling when we actually see the product mm -hmm. on the court. But I think, yeah, I, I appreciate Darko's like personable like approach yeah. towards all of this. I think that uh, the players are definitely in a really good mood. I think mm -hmm. that uh, everyone's sort of really on board. And, you know, I'm, I'm happy you brought up that question about sort of what's going to happen when players' minutes drop because mm -hmm. you're going to play a 10-man rotation. It's a zero-sum game. I'm curious to see how that goes too. But I do think that that those kind of conversations go a lot better when you're able to be personable and really relate to players. Because, you know, I think that, and this isn't even any subtext, this is just in general, but, like, there are coaches who are able to do that and really genuinely build connections with players. And there's other coaches that, you know, take a more professional approach. We're here to work. Let's get to work. Let's, let's wrap up, and then we go home. And look, know? to what Darko said off the very top, all of that stuff is way easier when you're winning games. Of course. If of you course. are sacrificing your minutes and your numbers are down a little bit, and the team wins 41 games again, that is going to feel a lot differently than if the team wins 45 games and is, you know, fighting for uh, a spot that is outside of the play-in and things like that. So, um, you know, that kind of, I think, hangs over everything. And, you know, Darko said the other day at practice, too, like, I'm paraphrasing here, but like, yeah, everything feels really good, but we haven't lost yet, and the games don't, the games haven't counted. <laughs> yeah. So um, that's going to be uh, interesting to track. And honestly, it's probably going to be the biggest test of Darko is, is you know, what yeah. happens the first time you know, someone is upset that their minutes were down in a game or, um, you know, the rotation shrinks one game and that 10th or 9th guy isn't seeing minutes or, or a couple losses pile up. But to your point and to your casually sliding in, yeah, so I was talking with Bobby Webster earlier. And, hey, um, come on. But, yeah, the, the personality side of it is a, is a huge component of coaching. Like, we'll focus yeah. a lot on the tactical, on the rotation decisions because that's stuff we can touch and, and analyze. But a lot of the head coach's role is, is the softer sciences. Yeah. No, I think uh, so far everyone's really happy. That's all. Uh, yeah. Honestly, that's just not like 
that's just the extent of my reporting so far. It's just everyone's very happy. Dude, I read we'll it. We'll see what happens yeah, as I saw the season your, goes on. But. I, I know how happy you are because we, we both contributed to a sportsset.ca, all three of us actually, uh, a panel uh, of predictions and things like that today. Yeah. And every one of yours was like, yeah, yeah Raptors. Uh, well, I mean, listen. Raptors are going to overperform. I, I said 44 wins, and then I said that Scotty Barnes is going to break out player this year. Yeah. yeah well, and they were the team that would overperform expectations the most. Well, I think expectations are, what, 36 and a half? So yeah. if you get to 44, that's, yeah. By the way, that's I was pretty looking, substantial. I was looking around. I know we got a break. But I was looking good. around at some of the projection models today. So some of the the quants, the more data analysis mm. guys have put their or people rather have put their projections out using their you know the LeBron system or Darko or SPR or whatever. That's the Darko and, system. Yeah. How does Darko have Darko's? Uh, it's rating? it's Darko Milicic uh, related, not not Rajkovic. Uh, oh, Serbian uh, related, but um, but yeah, most of them have the Raptors coming in like at the low end at forty point five wins and kind of at the high end like forty three point five. So mm. so pretty okay. uniformly ahead of those Vegas projections, which again I think. And as we'll talk about with Michael Pena and maybe with Bobby Marks later in the show, the Vegas line is pricing in, well, what if they sell? Right. That's the one kind of thing hanging over those numbers. And, you know, if you know the front office, they're not, they're not selling. All right. So uh, we're going to take that break. I've been your host, Will Loon. You've been listening to The Raptor Show on the Sportsline Radio Network. When we come back, we will interview Bobby Marks from ESPN. Diving deep into Leafs, Raptors, Jays, and NFL. The J.D. Bunkins Podcast. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the Raptor Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. I'm your host, Wayne Lou. Continue to be joined by co-host Blake Murphy. And joining us next on the line is Bobby Marks at ESPN. Bobby, how are you doing? I'm good, guys. How are you? We are we are doing well. Uh, a lot of money spent in the NBA last um, night, and uh, you know we'll, we'll we'll discuss some of that. None by the Raptors, obviously. The Raptors just like to take everybody to free agency, and we'll get to that. But uh, obviously, the biggest news: Giannis extends for three years, one eighty-six, uh, with the player option in the third year. Um, I mean, I, I think on on this front, I'll just start here. Like, is this an example of player empowerment really working well? Because Giannis wants to build a competitive team. The team rewards that and responds by getting Dame. And now Giannis reciprocates and says, you know what? I'm locked in too. Yeah, for now. Okay, okay, yeah. <laughs> locked in for now. I think, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's more about, and he, you know, it's funny um, you know, he went on the record saying, I guess it was during training camp. I'm not going to sign this extension because I can make more money um, next off season by doing a four year deal. Uh, he does a three year deal. And, and, and what happens is, is that it basically starts the clock for his next contract where he can try to maximize as much money down the road um, possible. I think um, certainly getting Lillard uh, helped. I, I, would, I would certainly say that um, played a role in it. Um I think it will be interesting is, is that, and you guys know this w- well, um, although a player is committed, um, really that, you know, there's still a lot of pressure on the organization to continue um, to build a, a, you know, a championship product around. I think the positive, um, you know, one of many is that it eliminates distraction this year um, where you don't, you know, he doesn't have to be talked about you know, hey, you didn't sign an extension, you're going to be going into potentially your last year next year. Um, I think that eliminates that distraction. But I do st- I still think there's pressure in, in Milwaukee. Um, Lillard edition, new head coach who's never coached, um, you know, was a rookie head coach in Agent Griffin. You guys had him in Toronto. 
We'll see where uh, Chris Middleton is. Brooke Lopez, team's older. Um, and we'll see what happens with what happens with this team when we get through a year from now. But yeah, I just I just think we've been around this so many times that although a player signs um, you know, a year or two doesn't doesn't mean anything, be, even though they're under contract for the long haul. Yeah, I mean, the immediate question after he signed was like, okay, when is he next extension eligible? Uh, <laughs> right away. Um, Bobby, you mentioned that that the the thought around the league and even from Giannis had been, well, that an extension maybe wouldn't make sense right now because of what the next contract could look like if it was timed differently. Giannis is only 28, but can you explain to us a little bit about how the NBA's over 38 rule, <laughs> like two contracts down the line, maybe nudged Giannis to doing this now? You know, it's funny. I, I we're, I'm talking about the I talked about the over 38 last year, and he's still 10 years away. <laughs> oh, it's like the sign of the times. He's yeah. I mean, it's a unique situation here. Um, you know, if you are um, you're limited as far as based on where you are with age. You know, he's not limited right now. But let's say if Giannis was, um, we're, we're going into the um, uh, off season of 2027. And he'll be I think 34 at the time um well he can extend for four years because the last year is when he would be 37 years of age now what happens when you know when he's 38 here that's when you get you know you you're not allowed to extend for as uh, more years we're seeing that basically kind of what um what will happen with james harden next off season here where let's say everything played out great in philadelphia which of course it's not um, <laughs> Philadelphia would not be allowed to sign Harden to a five-year contract because the fifth year takes him into his 38th birthday. Um, the four-year um, contract, basically it's a level playing field. It's a little bit kind of what we might see with Drew Holiday um, who potentially could become a free agent with, um, with Boston um, this off next off season. Um, it's a level playing field. Uh, although they have bird rights, they won't be able to sign him to a five-year contract. It's four years because of where Holiday is with his age. But yeah, I mean, Giannis, Giannis is interesting because he signs the two-year, uh, two, three-year extension. Um, basically, the player option that he hit it, had in 25-26 is now removed with a new contract. It's about probably like $5 million more than what he potentially could earn based on where the cap is going to be. And then they added two more years onto it. The sec the third year is, is a player option. So the, the goal for him is, is to sign another like short-term extension and then be able to extend for another four years and, and stay under that, um, under that 38 uh, rule there. But yeah, it's, it's <laughs> an interesting strategy that we're looking 10 years out with, uh, with this over 38 rule. I, I'm, I feel like Giannis, over the course of his career, like we might see him make like six hundred million dollars, seven hundred million. A lot of money. Like, well, you, you, I mean, you, you're right because there's not that many players. Um, maybe there's a handful that have the power or you know to do something like this. Usually, what what you see is I'm not going to extend because next year I can extend for four for two hundred and forty million dollars, and I can make an an extra um, eighty or ninety million dollars. Where where if it's player like Giannis, and we saw it with. LeBron a little bit. Uh, well, certainly I think we've continued to see with LeBron is, you know, maybe not as much now because he's getting older that, you know, even if he got hurt, there was always going to be a significant contract waiting for him next or the sure. third contract right. or the fourth contract here. And he's in a, in a, um, you know, in a, a unique situation, him and a, probably a handful of players that are able to do something like this. Right. Okay. So on the Raptors side of things, uh, a lot of excitement yesterday, but the Raptors, uh, 
had the option to potentially sign Precious Achua and Malachi Flynn to rookie scale extensions. They did not choose to do that. Not too much of a surprise with Malachi. Maybe a little bit disappointing with with Precious. Um, what do you think went into that from the Raptors? perspective in terms of specifically with a guy like Precious who has contributed, has been in the rotation in the last two years, has sometimes started. Certainly a guy Masai loves a lot. I remember when Masai acquired him, he said, finally, you are mine. Hmm. Uh, one of the classic Masai, uh, you know, good moments at, at press conferences. But they chose not to to extend Precious. Uh, what, what were your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think a couple of things here. You know, certainly since the um, the, the Acapurl trade, you know, we saw Precious's minutes go down. Um, I think he was at like 25 and then post the post trade it went down to 16 minutes mm. um so if you're if the front office are you looking to extend him at what zeke naji extended for i think like 432 um if you're precious you know it's certainly below the non-taxman level it's about eight eight million dollars per year do you view yourself as a starter um do you see yourself in a, in a maybe in a maybe he's you know we'll see how this year plays out but maybe he's looking for a bigger role here and i think with with pearl locked up for the next four years that might not be in, in in Toronto here, and I and I always say that rookie extensions are the hardest things to do for the agent and the player's perspective because the only thing you're competing against is the clock. There's nothing. There's no team out there that's going to give you an offer sheet, right? It's basically like arbitration, um, where you have a 6 p.m. deadline a day before the regular season. And what teams like to do, we saw it a lot with um you know 14 extensions and a lot of them were you know team friendly deals is that you've made not much money on a rookie contract and all of a sudden I'm going to offer you 25 million dollars guaranteed mm-hmm. and I'm going to give it to you right now and that's hard for players to turn down unless you're willing to kind of bet on yourself and I think for Precious's perspective he's, he's certainly will probably willing to bet on himself yeah that's that you mentioned 14 rookie scale extensions from the 2020 draft class five of them came in below what we anticipate the mid-level exception being next year and then another one with a, a kong Wu and stewart kind of right near like a little above the line but not significantly above the line now bobby that's a pretty new trend if we compare it to the last couple of years where basically it seemed like players and agents would operate well, if I don't get more than the mid-level in a rookie scale extension, I might as well play out the year, go to RFA and see if I, again, offer sheets are pretty rare, but at least you have the mid-level exception as kind of a, a bar to anchor those negotiations to. What do you make of the fact that we're seeing more of these sub-mid-level uh, extensions happen now? Yeah, I mean, I think it could be to the strength of the draft class, too. Um, you know, certainly we saw a lot of players come off the board early, whether it be Anthony Edwards and Tyrese Halliburton, LaMelo Ball, um, player Desmond Bain is another player. Um, uh, you, you know, it's um, um, Tyrese Maxey didn't get an extension, and I think more that was more kind of a business decision based on his low cap hold that he has. Um you know, Emmanuel quickly didn't get an extension. I thought he may, would have been in that $20 million range here. I just think it's the strength of the, the draft or the lack of strength where it's a, it's a, it's a bunch of rotational players here where you're looking at Peyton Pritchard and Zeke Naji. Um, I know Josh Green has started, um, you know, players like Isaiah Stewart. It's another player, um, Oneko Okongu, who in Atlanta is interesting because that team could be in a luxury tax with him and Sadiq Bey, who didn't get an extension here. Um, it's a little bit different than last year um, where you had Jordan Poole and Tyler Hero and RJ Barrett, guys that kind of got, you know, $20 million plus extensions. But it is, it's an interesting trend because 
I think I put it out there. I think there was like 32 extensions the prior three seasons and only three um, signed for less than a non, in, in the first year, the non-taxman level where this year five out of the 14 did. And you could even have put, you know, a guy like Danny Avia out there who signed for four for 55 and he would have fit that number too. But um, Washington started him high and, and descended his contract. Yeah, it's 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 fascinating to see those trends. You're right. It is not the best of draft classes. It's a little kind of boom or bust in that one. So we'll see what some of these guys do in their in their fourth years here. You know, a handful of these guys, including Malachi Flynn, maybe headed to getting non-tendered and being UFAs at the end of the season instead of RFAs. So even if we can understand it from Toronto's perspective, Malachi Flynn certainly not established enough to get one of these precious, maybe there just wasn't that right middle ground. It still leaves the Raptors in a, a bit of an odd spot where Pascal Siakam and Gary Trent will also be UFAs at the end of the season, barring an extension. OG Ananobi could opt out and become a free agent, could opt out and sign an extension as well. Um, but the Raptors are headed for an offseason where potentially they only have six guys under contract and three or four of their key rotation pieces are free agents, whether UFA or RFA. Um, Bobby, in your experience, even if we acknowledge that, yes, extensions can happen, you can work all this out, how difficult a spot is that to manage if it gets to that point in late June? Well, first, I apologize for the lawnmower behind my shoulder here. I, I, I feel like every Tuesday, because this happens usually when I go on TV at like 2.50, they just sit on my front lawn on with the lawnmower and the leaf blower here. So <laughs> I we, we can't hear it at all. So we're all good. Uh, They're watching ESPN and they're timing it. They're you just... know, it's it's interesting with um, with Toronto. We haven't even started playing games yet, and it's like you know who who are the teams you want to circle as far as your teams to watch, just based on. There's so many different questions as far as what's going to happen, and you're right. I mean, you've got. You know, OG Pascal and Gary, three guys that can still be extended up until June 30th. Um, OG, because he's got a, um, you know, despite having a, a player option here, and he kind of gets impacted a little bit because the extension rules really don't help him much because of the, you know, the most you can get is off 140%, and it's four for 117. And if you're OG, do you think you can get more in unrestricted free agents? And that leaves Toronto kind of in a little bit of a, a little bit of, of a pickle here. And the, the st interesting stat is we've only seen a handful of extensions during the regular season. And I think the Drew Holiday one from a few years ago when he signed in Milwaukee was in that $35 million range. So it's not common for big numbers um, during the season here. But Toronto, as I mean, you guys are well know, you, I mean, you got to figure out what you want to do with these players here. I know, um, you know, certainly you know, Kyle getting signed and traded. Um, at least you were able to get an asset. You know, Fred was Fred got hurt by the extension rules here. You know, he goes to Houston. You don't get anything back. I mean, I think the last thing you could do is lose, you know, you know, two out of these three players here. And you're looking, you're staring at $60 million in cap space to, you know, find replacement players. So for anyone who doesn't know the, the rules regarding extensions for someone in OG's situation, like Bobby said, you can give them a 40% raise in year one and then the smaller annual raises from there. That is actually up in this new CBA from the way it was before. It was intended to give a little bit more wiggle room for these types. Uh, certainly helps create a negotiating ban for Gary Trent Jr. But Bobby, in your estimation, did the CBA changes go far enough with, with loosening up the extension rules for both teams and players? I would have loved it. I mean, I'm fine with the years. I think the years are fine as far as the most you can get is a total of five years, including what's left on your contract. I would have 
I, and I, I think I wrote about it. I would have loved them to just get rid of the 120% or 140%. Yeah, pay your guy what you want say, to pay him. Yeah, and say you can sign him up to, you know, the you know 30% of the salary cap based on if, you know, if if Pascal or let's say OG had um, seven years of service next offseason, then you can sign him, extend him for up to 30% of the, of the salary cap. I mean, that's where I thought, you know, it would have, um, you know, it would have. And then what happens is that, in cases like um, Sacramento, Sacramento had to use cap space to renegotiate Demonis Sabonis because the extension wouldn't have helped in that case here. Um, so that backfired a little bit. But no, I don't. I don't think it went far enough. I, I thought it just, you know, we could have basically kind of eliminated how the percentage and go up to what the percentage is of for the salary cap. Yeah, I mean, I think at least in the case of Toronto, like you do have the ability to retain everybody but it would get extremely expensive if you were to do that and i do think i don't know if this situation ever came up with you in new jersey but like this is just a lot of guys at once that you have to make decisions on i think it's fair to say to some extent we'll wait and see we've got the new coach uh you know new offense everything how far is scotty gonna push it this year how How ready is he sure he's also up for a rookie scale extension next summer as well you know let's just (laughs) i think we can can put (laughs) that one in in dark pencil right now yeah, but, yeah. So I'm, so I'm well, saying, yeah, my good, my yeah. It's like my my good friend Brian Winhorse always says these are the fun extensions, right? Yes. Like the, the <laughs> second year extension is the fun one. It's the one, the third one. You'll be like, whoa, I don't do I want to be committing 200 million to a guy who's going to be 33, 34 years old? That's kind of where you, you where you get yourself in in trouble. No, I mean I I mean in New Jersey or in, in Brooklyn here, it's like you have to you know, prioritize as far as, you know, with the new rules, yes, you can keep all these guys. You're not forced to, you know, you're not hard cap, but with the rules, it, it makes it less as far as how you can add and build around, um, a build around your players. Yeah. Well, um, you know, around the league, James Harden is that situation. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> still unresolved. I love the daily updates from Woj hitting straight to my phone and my watch and everything. Directly into my brain eventually. That what uh, restaurant is he eating at? Well, I mean, well, the next the next one will be the Philadelphia 76ers have fined James Harden per game. I mean, that's basically, and I right. I don't know what the personal issue reasons are, and I guess we can give him the benefit of doubt. I I guess, but the next thing will be is that they'll just start finding. You know, they. I mean, I think the league will probably force them um, if Harden does not report. You know, certainly if they play Thursday, it'll cost them. What three hundred ninety thousand a game? Every game he misses <laughs> here. I just, you know, I, I've I've said all along. I've just felt like the best situation for James Harden is to be on the court and to show his value there. And that there's always a few teams, as you guys know, get desperate during the regular season. Maybe the Clippers sure. have a Paul George injury and they they need um, they need a James Harden and may, they're not willing to give up Terrence Mann now, but they are two weeks from now. Or maybe there's a Maybe New Orleans, you know, is feels like they're close to winning a championship and they they want to, you know, cash into some of their draft picks here. And James Harden being at home basically gives nobody leverage, whether it be Philadelphia or Harden himself. Yeah, it's a tough situation. And it's one where, you know, one of my uh, bolder predictions for the year has been, well, I actually think this plays out and he ends up just playing for Philadelphia because it's going to, you know, as much as James Harden might not like the way Daryl Morey has handled things and whatever personal stuff's going on, he probably also likes money and playing basketball. And he has some, you know, this doesn't matter a ton, but like career things that you want to keep 
padding your your stat totals for and, and get back to the playoffs and things like that. Um, Bobby, quickly before we let you go, uh, yeah. one of the other kind of weird things about these rosters being released for the start of the season, there are, uh, as of right now, unless someone saw, oh, actually it's 12 now because Ish Smith signed uh, again today. Uh, sadly, back with the Hornets, he could have signed for a record 14th team uh, instead, but he's back with the Hornets. Um, there are 12 roster spots open around basketball and a handful yeah. of two-way spots as well. We know with teams like Golden State, they're actually running two men short because they're yeah. trying to use that 14-day window to lower their tax bill. Um, do you think this is something... like? 12 open roster spots is not extreme, but it's more than we're used to seeing. Do you think the league's keeping an eye on that? The union's keeping an eye on that with teams running shorter, um, you know, to duck the tax or minimize the tax? Yeah, but it, it also feels like maybe not the spirit of having three two-way spots. Yeah, I mean, the league tweet, I mean, the league and the player association tweak the um, the 14-day rule. It still applies. So you have two weeks before you can sign a player if you fall below um, 14 players. What they did was they kind of added something else in there where you can only use a total of 28 days during the season here. So for example, if Golden State takes it to the limit and uses the full two weeks, well, going forward now, you only have 14 total days if you fall below 14 players again. So you can't keep on sign a player, wave a player, start the clock over and over. The like Jody that's, Meeks that's, Raptors rule, yeah, basically. That's that's not going to happen here. I think I think we've seen an increase in two-way contracts certainly has helped. Now we have three two-way contracts. Phoenix and Brooklyn, I think, are the only team that don't. So now you have an extra player that kind of you're willing to, if you're Miami, you're going to stay at 14 players here because you're a luxury tax. If you're New Orleans, you're going to stay at 14 players because you're a luxury tax. And you can use one of your um one of your two-way spots so in essence it 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 maybe decreases the value of that 15th roster spot but now it adds another um another job because now we have 30 extra two-way spots available bobby yeah turn that mic on well yeah we're still working through the things bobby thank you so much for joining us on the show and um yeah i hope you you know, get some time to, to rest and enjoy after this flurry of activity, all right? May your lawn be well-trimmed and your whiteboard uh, have no old that's, marker streaks on it. That's a better outro. I, I know. It's the uh, first day of the, um, as I say to my friends in the agent business, the honeymoon is now over. Your clients will be unhappy. The guys who do not play tonight will be calling and complaining, <laughs> wanting to be traded. And uh, now we start this uh, this regular season. All right. That's Bobby Marks. Thanks, Just guys. Me. Appreciate it. Thanks, Thank Bobby. You. Thank you. We're going to take a quick break. I've been your host, Will Lou. You're listening to the Raptor Show on the Sports Radio Network. When we come back, we'll talk to Michael Pena of The Ringer. Fresh views on everything in the National Football League. It's the Fan Checkdown with Matt Marchese and Donovan Bennett. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. To the Raptor Show on the Sports Radio Network. I'm your host, Wayne Luke. Continue to be joined by Blake Murphy. We will get Michael Pena on the line soon. Michael, if you're listening or watching, hop on that Zoom link we sent you, buddy. Um, but if yeah. he's listening or watching and is not on the Zoom, I, I got to question what Michael's uh, <laughs> he what might Michael's just be doing enjoying. Here. He might just like, oh, yeah. yeah. Look, I know. Look, he's a he's a recent father. He reads a ton. He produces all this great content at the Ringer. Uh, I doubt he has time for me and you. Uh, but while we have time, I didn't get to ask you a question sure. uh, earlier from practice. Uh, so there is a 
a quote from Precious Achua from practice, and it, re- it relates to what we were talking to uh, head coach Darko Rajakovic about, about, hey, you have OG and Pascal and Scotty, and the individual defensive talent level is so high. We talked a little bit about the switchiness and things like that. And then, oh, yeah, Precious Achua is there off the bench as well. And today at practice, uh, someone started to ask a question about, like you said you other, the other day, you think you can be one of the best defensive players. And Precious cuts the person off. I forget who it was. It might have been Lewenberg, but cuts the person off and oh, says, I, I know I'm one of the best defensive players. Uh, I don't think the numbers say otherwise if you go look at them. So first of all, Precious, thanks for, for being a pro numbers guy. I'll have yeah. your back with those numbers later. But he said, there's not, guy, there's not five guys in the NBA that can guard one through five the way he can. I'm paraphrasing a little bit here. Uh, he said, I've guarded MVPs that are fives, MVPs yeah. that are fours, MVPs that are ones. Um, he did that with Joel Embiid. He did that with Giannis. James Harden. James Harden. Yeah, there you go. Um, what I mean, obviously, we love that level of confidence. But what do you think Precious's defensive utilization is going to look like this year? I think long term. Well, okay, this year, I think it'll be him probably guarding up positions because he he probably will have to play back up five again. Um, and I think he has that ability. I think there's a switchability element that's going to be really nice for Darko to, to bring in there. I like that, especially for when talking about switchability, uh, and people are playing smaller. Um, sometimes we overlook the rebounding aspect. That's, mm-hmm. I love that aspect about Precious' this game. He really rebounds strong for a guy who's only about 6'8", six, 6'9", six, um, but is able to play center for you. And, and another guy who can push a little bit off his own defense yeah, rebounds. Yeah, which is great. And, and I think the other thing, too, is just he talked about how much he's like, look, I have one of the best examples in the league to study right now in OG Ananobi. And, and so he gets to pick OG's brain. But right now we get to pick Michael Pena's brain about his uh, – very bold increasingly bold it's like it's like a, it's like when you go to the store and you look at all the doritos like it just it gets increasingly bold it's like michael jordan with jeans he's like no bigger michael pina is like no bolder how you doing man i'm doing great i was really enjoying the prestigious anecdote yeah uh, I, I, you guys could go for another 20 minutes and i would be enraptured don't worry that, that, we have lots of time for that. We have to do two hours a day, and uh, there'll be lots of time to discuss Precious' great defense. But, hey, Peony, before we actually get going, um, two things. Well, number one, Blake just made me aware that uh, you're a recent father. Is that is that it? So congratulations. Recent-ish. Recent-ish. She's over one. Oh, okay. So, so all the time we had you on the show last year, we just I didn't congratulate you, so this is overdue. So congrats. <laughs> Thank you so much. Congrats on your Appreciate one-year-old. You. Uh, and then the other thing, too, I got to give you congrats. Speaking of you coming on the show last year was – I believe last year, probably around January, you were the one who brought up the idea that, hey, you know, because we were thinking, okay, Fred might go here, he might go here, he might resign in Toronto. And I think you were the first guy, uh, at least that I heard of, because uh, you said on the show, you said, you know, there's some, there's some traction of Fred going to Houston potentially. And um, lo and behold, Fred Van Vliet in Houston. So, ball knower. You know, I wasn't going to pat myself on the back, so That's I'm, I'm glad that you did that for me. I appreciate you, Will. Yeah, well, there you go. Well, now that you let let's start though. Then I, it, this didn't really make its way too far into your increasingly bold predictions. Although you were, you know, fairly optimistic about what Houston's going to look like relative to what they looked like last year. Um, what do you make of Fred's fit there? And, and then you you factor in that they also added Dylan Brooks. They have a, a boatload of young talent. Um, I don't know if they're going to make you know the Thunder level sixteen win jump or anything like that. Uh, but you like the fit as far back as January. How do you like the fit now that you've seen you know the whole picture of what they're trying to do there this year? I I love it a lot. Um, I'm a big fan of pretty much all of their young talent, and I feel like 
Fred compliments all of them in ways that are really obvious and ways that are subtle. Um, I'm writing a story right now on Alperin Shingun, and I actually had a conversation with him yesterday. And, um, you know, he talked about how defensively Fred is so much better than he thought before he became his teammate and was in practice with him every day and in training camp. And all the ways that Fred talks to him on the floor and screams at him on the floor also um, <laughs> instructs, um, tells him where to be when he's not in the right spot. Um, and then offensively says, hey, go over here. I'm going to get you an open look, that sort of thing. I feel like just in that specific um, combination, like Fred's screen setting on ball is going to be really helpful because Alperin Shingun is just an awesome um, I mean, he has like a baby Jokic skill set. He's not as good, obviously, but you can run inverted pick and rolls, which is something that Fred is really good at setting screens, um, putting defenses in the compromised positions. Um, generally speaking, Fred is like a pro's pro. And I feel like last year the Rockets did not play. They didn't really resemble a professional basketball team, <laughs> just aesthetically. There you go. There you <laughs> so, go. Yeah. So, so I feel like Fred will just be um the type of player who can raise their floor and make all of the young talent a little bit better and um they're just so athletic and so skilled and i'm also a huge dylan brooks fan too i'm like the one person honorary I canadian michael pena hey well listen yes, dylan brooks yes, converted yes. all of canada this summer so. okay will, okay good i'm glad will this alper and shangun love makes me you so will just revealed earlier he has a new cat named alfie i think we need to go with alpie or, or Alfarin yeah, Shangun. It's not going to happen. That's, yeah. That sounds too much like in Oppenheimer when they just kept calling him Oppie, which <laughs> which was very distracting over three hours. I was like, why are you calling him Oppie? Is 21 Savage as part of the Manhattan uh, Project. All right, man. Uh, okay, so that's Houston. Well, where do you want to start with this, man? There were a lot of bold. There were a lot of reasonably bold. Uh -huh. And then in my estimation, may, maybe we've gone to, like we're bold, italics, underlined, size 28 font with a couple of these. Where do you want to start, Will? All right, this is already pretty bold, but I'll start in the East. So Michael Pena wrote or predicted that the Bulls will host the playoff series, which means they're, they're top four, minimum, minimum in, in, the, in the conference seedings. Are you this high on the Bulls for real? Let me just say about this uh, bold predictions column, I spent a lot of time um, thinking of them, of the predictions, coming up with original thoughts, Fair and right. I will not be held accountable for any that are incorrect, <laughs> okay. uh, proven right. wrong at the end of the season. Um, I think, like, you know, I'm exaggerating a little bit with my yeah, yeah, sure. um, how I feel about the Chicago Bulls. Like, I'm not, I would not put money on them uh, hosting a playoff series. Uh, I just think that generally speaking, everyone is way too down on them. And it's a combination of the Eastern Conference is really, it's just kind of a morass of okay teams. And one or two is going to exceed expectations and a couple are going to drop below expectations. I like continuity in general, even though you could look at how they performed with their best players on the court last year and be like, Continuity is really not working out in Chicago, and I totally understand that. Um, I like how they guarded after the All-Star break. I like their personnel. I like their talent. I like, uh, you know, when you look at Zach Levine, as the season went on and he got healthy, uh, his efficiency rose, his scoring rose. Um, I love DeMar DeRozan still, um, and I feel like, 
how bad they were in the clutch last year is not reflective of of uh, some of their offensive pieces. And so if they were to stay healthy and Alex Caruso plays, you know, over averages over 25 minutes a game and doesn't miss too much time, I I just feel like they can be pretty good. And I'm I'm always going to be on Patrick Williams Island. Also, Um, I'm a total sucker for that type of player. So if he gets incrementally better, I feel like they'll be a pretty good two-way basketball team. Yeah, Patrick Williams, another one of the guys uh, who didn't sign a rookie scale extension is headed to RFA mm-hmm. uh, this summer. So you, you make some good points there, Michael. This was the number one defense after the All-Star break, even though I think like all of their games came against Charlotte somehow, uh, except <laughs> until the play-in. Um, a starting five that, that had pretty good numbers in a reasonable sample together. I guess when I... so. To put myself in your shoes and try to do this extra, I sat down. I was like, okay, let's come up with some. If you think Michaels are so unreasonable, Blake, you come up. Will, you come up with some bold predictions of your own. And honestly, the Bulls one I came to, and I'm curious as to your take on the likelihood of this if things don't go well. Kind of think there's a scenario where DeMar gets traded if this all doesn't work again because he is a UFA at the end of the season, and they kind of – it feels like they got to do something at some point. If this doesn't click, did you give any thought to that potential uh, as you were going through your, your bull scenarios? Oh, I mean, that's probably more likely (laughs) if I'm being honest with you. Like I think maybe even last year when I did this column, um, I might've had DeMar or Zach Levine getting traded during the season, which just made a lot of sense. And I think I started this blurb by saying that, um, I just totally disagree with how they've the front office has gone about building and constructing um, this team. And like, I would not have brought back Nikola Vucevic. I would not have brought back Kobe White or Io DeSumo. I would have started all over. I would have traded Alex Caruso, who I love dearly, and I think he's an amazing player, winning player. I would have traded him and gotten a first round pick before last year's trade deadline. Like, I, I just. Uh, even though he's on a great contract. So like I, they should blow it up, frankly. Like I, I, that's still something I believe, but since they clearly are not uh, in agreement there. And I think that um, some teams in the Eastern conference saw what the Miami heat did and maybe foolishly, maybe not have decided that, um, you know, the Eastern conference is right for uh, just getting into the playoffs and then getting hot and anything can happen. And I feel like, uh, what you saw a little bit with the Toronto Raptors too, and how they treated the offseason, I think that they have the same mentality. Um, I don't necessarily agree with that, but to answer your question, I could totally see DeMar DeRozan getting traded. I mean, he's still really good, and as you said, he's uh, on an he's uh, an unrestricted free agent this summer. Yeah, DeMar to the Bulls, or to DeMar to the Bulls, DeMar to the Clippers is one of my favorite uh, Ooh, bold predictions uh, for well, for midseason. That would require Harden not going to the Clippers, will? which really would be, and, and that's something we'll get to as well. But um, another potential big blockbuster uh, that, that you have put in here, this this is like fairly bold, but you, you put in here that the Heat and Sixers, you predicted that Miami gets Joel Embiid and the Sixers get Bam Adebayo, Duncan Robinson, two unprotected first-round picks, and a future pick swap. I love that you negotiated with yourself for that future pick swap. I know that was much, <laughs> much, a lot of conversations. Oh, he calls. was probably going back and forth with himself on protections. Yeah. Hey, Michael, could that be top eight protected? Nah, Michael, it's only going to be lottery <laughs> yeah. protected. That's what people do when you're in our business. Um, yeah, walk us through this one. This one's spicy. I like it. 
So I think I wrote this one maybe a day after the Celtics traded for Drew Holiday. Mm. And I was just kind of seeing... I was in a place of the Miami Heat are really depressing. And I don't... I mean, they lost out, obviously, on Damian Lillard. They lost out on Drew Holiday, two really good players who would have helped them in a huge way. Um, They lost Max Drews, Gabe Vincent. And I just felt like they were set up for disappointment this season. And then obviously you look at what's happened with the Philadelphia 76ers and like you mentioned James Harden's name. He has not played in a preseason game. He's been away from the team due to uh, personal issues uh, for the entire preseason up until this point pretty much or at least the last couple of weeks. And so the Sixers could easily disappoint as well, even though Tyrese Maxey is a really exciting young talent and Joel Embiid just won MVP. So I just think if... You know, the Bucks have a really good year. The Celtics have a really good year. Um, and Joel Embiid looks around and he's upset with his situation as he should be. He could easily request a trade. And I feel like if the Miami Heat kind of keep, you know, obviously they went to the finals last year and they've gone, went to the finals in 2020 and made the conference finals, I think, in the last for the last five years or something like that. So they're obviously very competitive, but they were disappointing in the regular season last year. Um, And I feel like they have a lower floor than people think. If they have a disappointing regular season and they make the play-in again, maybe they lose in the first round or something like that, they could look and kind of see, hey, the, the clock here is kind of ticking here with Jimmy Butler. We're paying him a lot of money. He's in his mid thirties. Bam's fantastic, but Bam is not, um, a superstar, I think it's fair to say. And so I think upping your ceiling by getting someone like Joel Embiid would make sense for them as painful as that would be. And I think that if you're the Philadelphia 76ers, getting someone like Bam plus draft capital back for Joel would just be kind of a, I don't know if it's a no brainer, but if he's wants out, that's pretty much as good as you could do. That's yeah, this it, does make a lot of sense for, for both sides. And I actually, this is, it sounds bold, but it also sounds semi-reasonable, which is, the sweet spot, which is how you know the Heat and Sixers both won't be interested because it sounds yeah. reasonable. That's I mean. uh, yeah. Pat Riley's gonna have to sit a bam down and have the same with Tyler Hero that he did the other day. We never thought about trading you, yes. bud. We never even considered it. Very uh, much, uh, Connor Roy was always interested in politics from a young age, kind of situation. Yeah. I was like, <laughs> the Miami like, Heat were always doing, interested yeah. in building around Tyler Hero, always, always. Uh, Go ahead. Man, okay, so th- so that's a, a reasonable one and, and a spicy one. The other element here is, uh, you know, if those teams are going to be aggressive, if, if they're responding to Boston's aggression, if Philly and Miami are, are maybe not all the way there, you know, that kind of frames where you see the Bucks in here. And within these predictions, um, you know, you didn't sound, and, and maybe it's different come playoff time, but you didn't sound super robust on where the Bucks are right now. Your 11th prediction was they'll have a below average defense. And maybe that looks different come playoff time. Maybe it doesn't matter because the offensive upside has pushed higher here. But now that we've had a little time to let it settle, the Drew Holiday out, Dame Lillard in, uh, is that just not hitting for you overall? Or this is specifically a defensive downside question for you? I think it's specifically about the defense and um, just how much of a downgrade that is positionally going from Drew Holiday, arguably the best at his position on ball, defending pick and rolls, positional versatility. It's, you, I don't need to explain Drew Holiday's value on the defensive <laughs> end to you guys um, to Damian Lillard, who just isn't. 
I mean, he hasn't really guarded in a relevant situation in a while, but for those who remember him in the playoffs, not a very good defensive player. Um, so I just think you combine that with a question I have about um, Chris Middleton and his ability to guard in the perimeter as he did a couple of years ago, particularly on their run to the finals. And um, I just think there's a lot depending on two guys, Brooke Lopez, who's 35, turns 36, played like 2,300 or something minutes last season, a uh, ton of minutes for someone who's had injury history. Um, and Giannis, who had uh, an operation on his knee in the offseason as well. I just think it's a lot to ask of those two guys, as great as they are on the defensive end, to um, have an impact on offense and just completely carry um, a defense that has been like a conveyor belt and how they just funnel guys into the paint with some really talented uh, perimeter pieces. So uh, it's more about the defense for me. I think the offense should be like, you know, absolutely amazing. It should be a fireball. Um, Dame is incredible. He was arguably the best offensive player in the NBA last season. And Giannis, you know, really nothing needs to be said about him either. He's a two-time MVP, just incredible force of nature. So I think offensively they are uh, going to be amazing. And I just think defensively it could be a little disappointing for people who expect them to be still in that top 10 tier. Yeah, I'm not sure how Adrian Griffin wants to run that defense, too, because um, yep. especially here in Toronto, he did a lot of the um, defensive sort of responsibilities here in Toronto. He wasn't an exclusively defensive coordinator. I think, you know, the Raptors were very much like, you know, no one's this one thing, you know, but he did do a lot on the defensive end, and, and Toronto got really creative, but a lot of those schemes, I'm not really sure how that would translate to Milwaukee's roster. It's kind of the mm-hmm. similar concern I have with Nick Nurse going to Philadelphia is, are you able to replicate a lot of these things uh, with a much different roster build? But... On the topic of defense, I love this one that you have. Victor uh, Victor Wemanyama, Defensive Player of the Year. Were you going to say Depot for a second there? I don't think Oladipo's saw, getting back Victor to that level. And then, I saw Victor and then Depoy, and I was in, in my mind, I'm like, so, Victor Oladipo? I, I actually yeah. – so, Michael, I'm going to reveal this to you. So, uh, Will, in our in our planning document here, had just written Victor – one like single name yeah. for Wembenyama. I, I feel like we're going Wemby if <laughs> with a single name here, right? Yeah, one one of the two. It's got to be Wemby. It's got to be Wemby. He's got to own both names, like Michael Jordan. You know what I mean? Like yeah, Mike and Jordan are both just him. <laughs> uh, That's gonna be Victor. To yeah. your question, him as Defensive Player of the Year, Michael. Um, obviously the length is there, the highlights are there. He is uh, tied for seventh in the longest odds to actually win that award. So not far off the board, but not a favorite. Uh, what do you, what do you? What has you leaning Wemby there for for Depoy? He is, I mean, I think he's already one of the five best defenders in the NBA, and he hasn't played a game yet. <laughs> um, I'm going off of pretty, I mean, I'm just going off of preseason basketball, but everything that he's done, I've watched every Spurs game that he's played in, and the way he just takes, I, I think I wrote this in the piece, it's like, the whole point of NBA offense right now is to create space. And the best thing that Victor Wembanyama does is he just takes away space from everybody. So if he's on the weak side, good luck threading that needle on a pass or skip pass to the corner. Um, they put him on Jalen Williams in his debut. And it was just, it was like scary to see, honestly, the way he's just able to move his feet on the perimeter the timing he has on jump shots. I think that there will be a little bit of a learning curve for sure, but there's really no reason why he can't be the best shot blocker, the most versatile 
um, one through five. To five. He was guarding Chris Paul for a few possessions <laughs> against the Warriors. He blocked Clay's three, took it the other way, blocked an Andrew Wiggins jumper. Yeah. Um, he's just so intimidating. And I really wanted to give this award to um, Bam Adebayo, who I think is the most versatile defense, Future sixer. defensive player. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. Um, <laughs> uh, and someone who really deserves a defensive player of the year. But I, my my brain was just like slowly turning into I need to like Victor's here already. And yeah. I don't think there's going to be that long of an adjustment period for him in the NBA. I think he's already just an absolute stud on the defensive end. This is so fun because I'm rooting for this. Um, out of all the predictions you have, I'm rooting for this one. The man has an eight foot wingspan. Like <laughs> it just like physically that just doesn't even make sense. You add that with the mobility. I think it's going to be like when a hotshot pitcher, you know, gets like promoted to the majors and like he's got this wicked slider and like literally no one in the entire league knows how to hit it. And it's going to take like seeing this guy two, three times before you realize like what shots do I typically get off Mm -hmm. as an offensive player? And then how do I have a specific shot profile against Wemby? Because like the typical moves that you would use to make space that you're talking about, the typical ways you're able to use screens, you're like, oh, I'm free. I'm going to take the shot. That's when he gets you. Like, and that's where I think he's going to come out of the gate and immediately average like three blocks a game, if not more, just because there's going to be that adjustment period. You saw that Wiggins play, which I think everyone's seen that highlight by now, where Wiggins, he's like, oh, I've got one-on-one against a big, normal play. You know, I'm going to go attack this mismatch. And he's going into his dribble package. And I know Wiggins is like more of a, you know, kind of a role player now, but like still has a great one-on-one package, no doubt. Mm-hmm. And he's trying like five, six different moves. And ultimately, he just gets like so easily swatted by Wemby. That's the adjustment period where I think like maybe year two, the league catches up to Wemby, but year one, it's like you're playing a different sport against them. And they kind of have some fun defensive pieces around them as well, where like, like obviously creativity wise, you could get so weird defensively. Like he could be a one minute, like he could just be your weak side defense, the whole on his own and close out to anyone and let someone X out back to, you know, the other corner. So you you can do a lot of, uh, a lot of fun things. Michael um, on this one, do you think the Spurs are going to be, like real bad or like fun competitive bad i think fun competitive bad and there will be nights when you're kind of like you see the glimpses of oh this team is like actually one only one year away or two years away from making the playoffs i really do like i love so many of their young pieces i i actually um am a huge fan of how they've already kind of it seems like, you know, in signing and extending Zach Collins at the five to be their starting center, who's looked really great this preseason, um, putting Wemby at the four, I guess, at whatever position he is, um, defensively is really fascinating to me and I think really smart. And so I like Devin Vassell, who they extended to a big money contract, is a really good shooter. Um who can develop to be a really high volume pick and roll playmaker with uh, Wembenyama. Um, I'm a little lower on Keldon Johnson than most, but he's a talent 20 points per game. Plus uh, has had a season knocking down over 40% of his threes, rugged player downhill, um, feisty in transition. uh, And just all of the recent draft picks that they've had are competent, unique, singular. They're playing for Greg Popovich. I just think like uh, this team could be pretty good faster than a lot of people think. And they should be fun to watch. Wemby's going to be must-watch at, at least the first couple times you see him. So, Michael, we've done this. We, we've read your bold predictions and kind of 
picked at them or, or asked you to further explain. We're, we're going to turn the tables now. Yeah. Um, we're going to let you let us know how bad our bold predictions are. So Will and I both put some together. Uh, Will, I'm going to start it off with you to throw it. Michael, what is your boldest prediction? And again, the idea here is not to be right. It's to be bold yeah, yeah. and something that could have we're talking about like five percent ten percent hits here uh they don't they don't have to be accurate so get weird man we're like in the garage and we're like 16 year olds with guitars and we're just riffing you know what i mean like <laughs> i'm gonna play a c chord and see where you go from nobody there. wants to hear what that was like for me uh honestly i talented. had a very similar experience believe it or not okay my first one it, it gets spicier from here but jason tatum wins mvp however the celtics lose in round two to the miami heat oh, I, 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 that one is that one is just like i, I had to just toss that in there. Obviously, they're going to lose to Miami. Uh, but, yeah, Jason Hayden wins his MVP. I don't, I don't see why not. I mean, like, the Celtics have an incredible team. If they finish top of the conference, I think that, obviously, that gives you a huge boost. Every huge projection head. system has them to finish first and wins. Yeah, yeah. And I think for, for Tatum, like, it's kind of a – not about time, but I do think that he's, like, firmly in that mix, right? Like, in, in a top five kind of conversation. And I think, especially in terms of two-way production, you know, obviously, he can really score, but he's also a really good defender as well. And I don't think, see it as that bold. But I also see if the Celtics go all out in the regular season, by the time they get to round two and the Miami Heat are there, all of a sudden, Caleb Martin might be uh, switching seven threes. That might be a Super Bowl prediction. But then when you come time to the playoffs, it's like, oh, that actually happened. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, Michael, what do you think of this one? Let's leave the Heat part out of it and just Jason Tatum has an MVP level season, but the Celtics are out by round two. I love the first half. Okay. Um, it's okay. You work for the I, ringer. We get it. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, I think that, you know, just the case for Jason Tatum is really easy to make. He's uh, he finished fourth last year for MVP. He's one of the best two way players in the league. Um, best player on the best team is a possibility. And historically, that's usually who wins the MVP. So if they're the one seed and he's averaging 30 points a night and he's a little bit more efficient than he was last year, then it's kind of a no brainer. Um, I think this team is going to win the title. So, uh, of course, they could go out in round two. That's, you know, that's we're talking 5%, 10%. That's obviously possible. They're, if Chris Epsporzingis gets hurt, Al Horford just kind of falls off a cliff, they could be in trouble. Um, and we saw last year the Milwaukee Bucks were a lot of people's pick to win the NBA championship and they lost in round one. So the NBA is crazy. Anything can happen. Um, overall, I give this two thumbs up. Will. okay, nice. All right, Blake, maybe with your first one. All right. This is a pretty irrelevant one, um, okay. but on the basis of they catch some teams sleeping on them a little bit early in the year. And this hasn't taken hold enough yet for teams to be properly motivated in a subdivision with the Nets, Bulls, Raptors, and Celtics. The Magic not only emerge as the in-season tournament team from that group, they win the whole in-season tournament, catching everyone napping early in the season. I I love this. I was upset at myself for not being, just giving the Magic their own blurb, honestly. Like, fascinated by this team. Um, anyone who watched FIBA, there's, they've got some really talented pieces. Oh, yeah. Um, and... Not only that, but those pieces could make significant jumps this season. I think I had, you know, I wouldn't be totally shocked if one of Paolo or Franz made the all-star team this year. It wouldn't be like the craziest thing in NBA history. And I feel like with their length, with their versatility, um, 
Jonathan Isaac is back finally on the team. People forgot that he existed, but incredible defender. Mm. Uh, like just defensively alone, I feel like they could be an elite team um, yeah. for a stretch, as you said, particularly at the start of the season. And I think, you know, offensively, there's a little bit of a question about do they have enough shooting and how will they kind of score efficiently? Uh, but if those two guys that I mentioned earlier um, make jumps offensively and are able to be a little bit better creating their own shot in a reliable manner, then yeah, I could totally see uh, them uh, winning. What'd you say? Winning the in-season tournament. Is that what we're, yeah. we're talking about? Now? Yeah. Okay, like we're, yeah. we're only talking until mid December before other teams exactly, are like, Oh, yeah. we got to take this team right. seriously. And Oh, by the way, it's winning time. I, this is mostly a bet on like, I mean, first of all, the group they're in with like Nets, Bulls, Raptors, Celtics, that's not a, a super, even if we think the Celtics are going to be a regular season team, it's just fine. And then, yeah, the fact that other teams might not be properly incentivized or properly ready for the, the step forward magic. Mm. Uh, like, Will, what else you got? I, like I think that. we got time for one more each, probably. I, I got. You know what? If we only got time for one more each, because I want to throw this Harden traded to Miami for Kyle Lowry and some prospects, mostly so that Philadelphia can become the most annoying team of all time. Kyle Lowry, Patrick Beverly, uh, PJ Tucker, Joel Embiid, Nick Nurse coaching that team. There are more in the press. It, that that's just incredible levels of annoyance. The, the referees union steps in <laughs> and vetoes this trade. Yeah. Kyle Lowry's trying to dig a hole to go underneath a pick and roll. You know, a few people talk about go under pick and rolls, but not physically under people. Uh, okay, well, if we're going to go super bold and super spicy, I do not wish this to happen at all. But my super bold prediction is Bucks fire Adrian Griffin midseason to bring in a veteran coach. They're on the clock. And if a rookie Terry coach doesn't Stotts cut back? It, you know what? Let's, let's, no, 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 not Terry Stotts. But someone with championship like uh, credentials or something like that. But yeah, that's my super, super bold one because they're on the clock. Doc Rivers steps out of the booth. Oh, my game. God. Yes, yes. Let's put that in there. Doc Rivers <laughs> comes in. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, listen, uh, I, li I like Griff a lot, but, you know, it, it, he's under a lot of pressure. That's all. I can totally see this happening. Um, like, particularly if their defense is really disappointing and he can't really find any solutions to keep their head above water on that end and... You know, if Dame, I know Dame said when he's 38 years old, he's going to be moving like he is now, but there will be a point when he's a, a little slower than he was last year and two years before that. Um, and if that were to happen, I mean, like the margin for error, I feel like is a little, a little smaller than people think. Plus Chris Middleton, um, his health is a question mark. So if they were to get off to a really slow start and be a little disappointing, um, I could see this happening for sure. Okay. All right. My, uh, my, I had a hardened one too, but we've done enough hardened yeah, trade yeah, scenario yeah. stuff. Uh, okay. So last year, the Sacramento Kings set an NBA record for offensive rating. Uh, that, you know, offensive rating has been on a continual uptick last year. League wide was by far the highest offensive rating uh, that we've ever seen. The counter to that though, that has to go hand in hand. It was, it was the worst defensive rating in league history. Uh, the Sacramento <laughs> Kings were quite bad on that. end. so my prediction for the Sacramento Kings is that they break their own record for the worst defensive rating ever for any team that won more than 35 games. Hmm. That is, they set the record last year. I'm saying they beat it. They still win more than 35 games, but they lower the bar even further for worst defense on a good team. You know, what's so interesting about the Kings was how well they guarded in the playoffs, like before yeah. game seven, when Steph Curry just 
just rip their hearts out. Um, like they were disciplined. They were not falling for split cuts. They were protecting the rim. Like Trey Lyles looked like the Kemi Matumbo for stretches. Like <laughs> they were really just a different basketball team. Um, I think the real Sacramento Kings are the team that we saw in the regular season, though. And I think like, you know, they had a lot of injury related luck last year. Mm-hmm. And I think they'll be OK, but I don't, you know, two straight years of that type of luck is a little tricky. And if a key contributor would have fall, um, fall to the sideline, like. I could see their defense be even worse. That's totally a possibility. So right on you, Blake. I liked it. <laughs> All right. These are too reasonable because we couldn't get him to, to disagree with any of these. But, uh, <laughs> you know, we'll just have to say something truly insane next this time. Is the thing. I used to do this. Um, so when I wrote at Fangraphs on the baseball side, um, something that we, we everyone had to do their 10-bowl predictions every year. And it's like, okay, like the only number correct you could get is like four out of 10 was the only right number any Mm. less than that you're stupid any more than that you weren't bold enough so it is really a science to uh find the right level of boldness here i i think michael did it with his piece on the kind of and the escalatingly bold is a is a great way to do it um so michael you're better at this than we are i think we can safely say yeah go read his piece at the ringer but michael Bino, thank you so much for joining us on the show uh and yeah i mean we're gonna plug alex's book right after the the break so i hope you got a copy of this you know prehistoric and if you have uh Love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, Michael's a big reader, so I bet he has. Super shameless plug right here. I have a copy. I have not read it yet. I can't wait to. Um, I'm getting back into basketball fever, though, so it's going to be devoured. No pun intended very soon. (laughs) There you go. All right. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Uh, We're going to take another break, our last break, uh, over here on the Raptors show. And uh, we'll come back. Uh, Our next guest, Alex Wong. That's right. You never heard of this guy, but he's going to join our show. The most opinionated Maple Leaf show out there. Real Kipper and Born. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the Raptor Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. I'm your host, Wayne Lou. I'm joined for the final segment here by two esteemed authors, not just Alex Wong, who has written his third book here, Prehistoric, uh, but also, as I found out during the break, Blake Murphy also. What do you mean found out? I wrote that book in 2019. Yeah, and I actually have a copy of it. Uh, Haven't you had Carl English on the show too? I, I I know. I just I forgot. But regardless, we've got two uh, esteemed authors here. Alex Wong. You know, I just uh, I woke up this morning and I turned on breakfast television. That's what every 30-year-old does. And I threw it on and I saw you talking, uh, you know, about the book there. And I was like, damn, you know, we're supposed to do that here on the show today. But I'm, I'm hope, I hope you're celebrating this day this joyous day of uh, your book launch as you <laughs> self-produce. <laughs> Just open the book. It'll stand up by itself, man. What are you doing? No, I'm trying to get my name in the shot. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thanks, guys, for having me on the show. Yeah. Yeah. What you guys need from we're, me. We're all looking for the man who did this. <laughs> no, um, by the way, I was at Breakfast Television and right. had a chance to say hi to Sid uh, Sixero. And he actually was just chatting uh, to me about just the show, all this stuff, and just letting us know. And just letting us know, um, you know, he's been he's been watching, and he told me there's some secret things here in the studio. So I'll tell you guys about that off air. 
Okay. Yeah, Maybe we'll reveal one, uh, I don't know. <laughs> After every Raptors win, we'll reveal one of Sid's secret things okay, in the so, studio. Okay, so we have to reveal like around 42 things this yeah. year? Okay. Um, in seriousness, no, though, Alex, like you did breakfast television today. You've obviously been making them the media rounds. Um, we know you've been promoting it a lot on social media, but the book is like actually much. out now. And like it, it's been leaking out. Like I know book publisher, book places, once they have it, they don't hold back. They just put it on the shelves. But today is the official launch day and you've been, you know, a lot, a lot, a lot of work has gone into this. What, like 60, 70 interviews over a year of your life. How do you feel? Yeah, it's great, man. I think this is the best part just for, you know, like you mentioned, like the book's been getting into the hands of a lot of Raptors fans and for them to learn about the origin story of the team, for them to really dive in and understand some of these players that they only know probably by name, right? Like, like you know, you hear names like Oliver Miller, Jean Tabak, like Vincenzo Esposito, and it's like, what are their real stories? And that was one of the one of the many things I wanted to accomplish with this book was able to talk to um, 12 of 12 players that played in that first season and also BJ Armstrong because I had to confront him because he was drafted in the expansion draft and then came here, requested a trade and never played for the team. But it's like it's it's a dive back to understand what basketball was like back in the early 90s here in the city of Toronto. Yeah. Okay. let's uh, let's go through just a couple of the stories. So let's start with the actual like ownership bidding process, right? Because, um, you know, Larry Tannenbaum's sort of been like the de facto owner of the team for so long now, mm. obviously at the head of MLSC. Yeah, shouts to Uncle Larry. Uh, but it was John Bitoff Jr. who actually won the bid and the meeting with David Stern in New York. So tell us that story, how uh, that unlikely group won. Yeah, you know, John had, had grown up a huge fan of basketball, went to um, Indiana University, watched Isaiah Thomas win a national championship there. And growing up, he had always just wanted to bring basketball to Canada and specifically Toronto. And he didn't understand why there wasn't more enthusiasm for it. So in 93, when the NBA opened up to uh, expansion bids from Toronto, um, another city they actually uh, considered was St. Petersburg, Tampa. So that would have been interesting if well, Tampa gonna, had a bad... What are they going to play? They're going to play, play in the dome? drop? Yeah, they're going to play in the drop. Well, might not the sidelines would have looked crazy. <laughs> the basketball equivalent of like a fly ball getting lost in the rafters. They just have a roof that's like yeah. only 13 feet high. If it hits yeah. the roof, it's a two-pointer. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? I would watch that brand of basketball instead of the in-season tournament. But yeah, so John submitted a bid. He rounded up a, an ownership group and they were able to, to really win the expansion committee over. And the expansion committee was just comprised of owners from around the league and they all went to New York for a presentation and you know around that time everybody expected either Larry Tannenbaum's group and another group um, a second group as well which Magic Johnson was involved with mm. um, they were considered the the front runners and, and John was able to win the bid and I, I don't have his exact age off the top of my head but he was like 33 34 yeah, yeah. when he won the bid and, and that's part of the start of the book it's like he just brought such a youthful energy to, to running an expansion team, which they always call just a startup, a startup company. They had to decide on the logo. They had to sell season tickets. They, they had to form a broadcast team. They had to figure out game ops, what music to play in, in the Sky Dome back then and, and, and all of that stuff. And, and that's a lot of the stuff that I dove into in the book as well. Okay, how quickly though did you pivot from how the Raptors were created to the way the NBA handled expansion teams where obviously there's the expansion draft and you can get a high pick, but you can't get the number one pick in the first couple of years of their existence. So obviously it works out well the first year with Damon Stoudemire seventh overall, mm -hmm. but then the next year 
Allen Iverson is the top of the draft. And the year after that, it's Tim Duncan. And the, the Raptors were probably too good by the Tim Duncan mm. year to be really in the mix there. But yeah, you're looking at a couple drafts with AI and Tim Duncan at the top that the NBA was just like, no chance at, at a, a franchise-defining star. Yeah, it actually goes all the way back to um, uh, my favorite player growing up, Shaq. Because like the Orlando Magic had come into the, to the NBA in 1989. They, had, they, they were lucky enough to draft Shaq and Penny Hardaway. Suddenly, they're in the finals. I think like six years into their their um, you know franchise, and the other owners weren't happy. So that's why when the Raptors and Grizzlies came in, they put together all these restrictions, and even the expansion draft. Like John Glenn Grunwald, who was assistant GM, talked a lot about it too in the book. Like they were all these restrictions, basically taking on bad contracts or like draft busts that hadn't worked out um, in the first couple of years and stuff. Um, and I don't want to spoil anything, but like they actually like filed threatened to file a lawsuit against the NBA and like. Didn't. Oh, they were going to be the Knicks? <laughs> yeah. Whoa. Yeah, so they all wanted right. to, because like they were like, oh, we know how this draft is going to play out, and all these teams are just trying to saddle us right. with these contracts. Plus, they only could work with, I believe, like 75% of the salary cap, mm. which were crazy when I was looking up the numbers. Their salary cap was $16 million mm. back that's, in like... That's, that's less than one Duncan <laughs> this, Robinson. That's a DeAnthony Melton. It's so fascinating to read about this stuff in the book, because like I've obviously been thinking a lot, like the NBA is going to expand to Seattle and Las Vegas yep. Yep. sooner or later, probably when the next TV rights deal comes up so they can price that into the expansion fees and things like that. And trying to work through in my head what the expansion rules would be, what would make sense for the expansion draft and the salary cap and the actual draft and stuff like that is fascinating. And then you read this and it's like, okay, well, as a starting point, not that. Yeah. That's a good starting point for 2026 or, or whatever it ends up being. Not 1995 version. Yeah, and it's, it's crazy. Like the book coming out now, you know, uh, Brandon Malone passed away uh, recently at the age of, of 81. And, you know, I had a chance in the book to, to talk to Brendan uh, about the ups and downs of that first season. He only lasted one year here as head coach. And obviously, I think people know Michael Malone in Denver is his son. And I was able to tell a bit of his story, too. In retrospect, I wish I was able to do more of, of the relationship between Brendan and Michael growing up. Because Brendan always told Michael Malone to not get into coaching because hmm. he understood how much it took away from his family and just how gru like how grueling it was. But it reached a point where he saw his son, Michael, like he was so passionate, like he was so passionate. I think I think Michael Malone told me a story where he would work at Foot Locker, and at the at night he would like go work at a college, like just like keeping scores and all this stuff. Mm. Like he saw how passionate Michael was, and at one and then he finally turned the corner and was like, you know what, I'm gonna teach you everything about about coaching. So it was super cool watching the Nuggets win the championship last season. And I know on the broadcast they talked about how like Brendan Malone couldn't be here, and that's when I kind of got an inkling that obviously he was like was not well right. um, health wise. So. Um, I hope when people check out the book too, you know, there's a copy to 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 Michael Malone and the family and stuff. Like, I want to make sure too that they they appreciate kind of just the, the the storytelling and the documenting of this. Yeah, I remember being at Vegas, and it was really nice for the NBA coaching um, association to honor Brendan. Um, obviously, mm -hmm. he wasn't available to to receive it at that time, uh, but you know, Michael Malone was there, and he he got it from um, you know Rick Carlisle, who's the president of the coaches, and. It just that bit of Raptors history was so celebrated. And I remember just only reading about it in this book, but even thinking back to sort of just the regular life of a coach, like reading this book and, and not, not to spoil it, but you know, there was some, there was some uh, disagreement between the coaches and the front office in terms of, you know, things like uh, how many minutes should you play your players? Uh, are we going to try to win this season? Are we going to try to tank? Like these are like age old issues that, you know, especially at the context of when I read this, you sent me the manuscript in, in about March of last season, I was reading it. I'm like, damn, 
Some things don't change. Do yeah, they? I mean, it was the exact same. I mean, people always talk about them beating the 72 and 10 Bulls that season. And yeah. there's a whole chapter in there that was super fun. Uh, dove into a lot of kind of side plots and subplots of, of that game on and off the court. And one of the things that people forget is they, Brandon Malone only played like seven guys. And again, not to spoil it, but there was such a celebration and we still celebrate it still on NBA TV Canada and stuff. But Isaiah Thomas, the general manager, was super not happy with Brendan. Right. Like they were in the midst of just arguing about minutes and like Isaiah wait, wait, wanted wait. Isaiah wanted Brendan to be fired that day. I, I would have yeah. thought I understand the beef overall of like, hey, are we trying to win? Or are we trying to develop? Mm -hmm. what, what's the plan here? But I would have thought a W over MJ during that season, Isaiah Thomas would have extended Brendan Malone's contract right there, given what the yeah. Isaiah-MJ uh, dynamic is yeah, like. Yeah, instead what happened was the game was played at three, so they were wrapped up, I guess, by like late afternoon. And John Bitov remembers Isaiah going to his place that evening and asking to fire Brendan the next day. Damn. Yeah, and John had to be had to calm him down. You know, the writing was already on the wall. There's only like 12 games left in the season. Mm. And I think at the time they were super protective of Damon Stoudemire because Damon, I think, was playing like 40 minutes a game. Yo, he played yeah. like 48 minutes. Like, I, I feel like Isaiah <laughs> might have had a point with the minutes thing. Dude, remember so the other day when I gave you guys the Grady Dick rookie three-pointers prop and yeah, Damon right. Stoudemire's rookie three-point total yeah. right. is uh, 133 and nobody else is particularly close? Yeah, it's because he played, he averaged 41 minutes a game as a rookie. <laughs> yeah, no, it was, um, you know, I, I can see definitely both sides to it, but Brendan too if you want to do the Nick Nurse comparison like he had been a college head coach mm. and assistant coach with the bad boy Pistons credited with creating the Jordan rules like he this was his first head coaching chance so in the same way like he was gonna try to win even though it was an expansion team um, and I know you guys probably have other stuff to ask me but before I forget too like I just want people to know aside from like the super basketball you know deep dive stuff there's a lot of fun stuff in there too oh, yeah, right for like sure. a lot of fun stuff like john sally's new year's party <laughs> uh that took place where a car ended up uh, on a on a, i guess the frozen lake ontario like right outside uh like there's ac earl like you know how he brought wu-tang to to scarborough like there's a lot of fun stuff uh in there as well yeah because I, I think to that point right you know I especially because of how new it was, I think it really added this layer of, like, connectivity among the players. Mm -hmm. Typically, when you, you know, when you heard about Pascal, for example, in the most recent press conference, he was talking about, like, I don't really know bad teams with good vibes, right? Because you lose, you don't have good vibes. Weirdly enough, this is a team that lost a lot, but had great vibes. Like, these guys were really connected off the court. They did mm -hmm. a lot of those things. And I think part of it, too, is you have to remember, because right now we take it for granted, right? The Raptors is this established brand, you know, uh, people wear jerseys everywhere. Everyone knows about the team. They're on easy to find on national broadcasts. And, you know, we have shows like this now, which we got to recognize weren't even around as recently as like five years ago to have this kind of level of discussion about this team. So the, the prominence of this team has really grown in the stature. But you write about in this book sort of the day one kind of like grassroots push where players were going to like your high schools or your mm -hmm. middle schools. And it's like, hey, here you go. Like, you know, just to raise awareness of this team. Yeah, they were signing autographs and like the, the Raptors, um, you know, put together a great community, community relations team and they actually put together a Raptor ball program and reached out to ambassadors in like different communities, like Chinese community, black community. Like they just wanted to make sure that the reach was really wide and these programs helped set up a lot of organizations that are still here today. Like we, we've had Clement Chu from CCYA on. He incorporated his nonprofit in 1995 and they were brought in to col collaborate with the Raptors and look right. at like what they're doing today with the Celeb Classic and all this stuff. So they refurbished a lot of courts around the city. And I know it's like, I know now it sounds like, oh, like MLSC's got Launchpad and all this stuff, but it's like, it did take the awareness of that first year organization to, to realize that this is something that we need to tap into. Yeah, okay. and it was a very like purposeful 
decision for them to market themselves towards uh, like sort yeah. of underserved um, yeah. communities. John, John right? said kids, women, and immigrants. Like he said, that's that's that was the, the vision new, from day that's one. That's the new yeah. fan base. He's like, that's the new fan, base. and it still is right now. Like I think mm-hmm. that's one of the things you could feel really proud of as being a Raptor fan. It's a really diverse following across the board. All right, that's a lot of serious stuff, and the okay. book's great for that. But I gotta ask, <laughs> let's go. Okay, let's where in like you've interviewed some very very cool people about some cool stuff over your entire career, but getting to ask Samuel Jackson about. <laughs> I got it right here in my Raptor bag. Where does that rank for you? Like getting to talk to Samuel like Jackson about the Raptors. Samuel yeah, this ranks right next to my... Uh, it wasn't G- supposed to be a <laughs> oh, impersonation. Sorry. Sorry. This ranks right next to uh, the time I got to interview Cameron um, for, for GQ. Um, so okay. that's right. uh, that's up there for me. So I'm, I'm going to go with both of those. But yeah, it was amazing. Uh, friend of the program, Elaine Kwans, um, you know, still keeps in touch with Samuel L., was able to to ask him a lot of questions about being a the first celebrity fan, and that's the thing. Like like you guys mentioned, um, like a lot of parallels between first year and now. It's like they're still trying to bring new fans in. They're trying to have that celebrity factor, trying to make the arena, you know, a popping place and all this stuff. And there's a lot of a lot of threads too. Like guys like Paul Jones, Leo Routens, who I talked to in the book, like they're still involved. Mm-hmm. Um, the Raptor, whose name we won't reveal. Um, Doug Smith as well. Like there's so many people that were there yeah, from yeah. day one, and it was incredible to like draw those connections. Yeah, for sure. So get the book, Prehistoric, in stores now. Damn, great interview, guys. Yeah, well, yeah. you know, like... Didn't uh, even have to prep you guys. This, this wasn't even, you know, like a, a paid <laughs> appearance. So we have to wrap up here today, though. That does it for us. I've uh, been your host, Will Lou, and you've been listening to The Raptor Show on the Sports Radio Network. Thanks once again to Darko Ryakovich, Bobby Marks, Blake Murphy, uh, Michael Pena, producer and co-host Alice Wong, producer Derek, Fran Baraska, David Sis, Jeremy Manitai for helping behind the scenes. We'll be back tomorrow.